Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. Well, um, some of you may have had a look, but um, we opened up our new website and um, would like to invite people to take a look at that, TorahToTheTribes.com. So that's exciting. We've got a whole bunch of um, material, new material up there, and we'll be continuing to add to that each and every week, whether it be MP4, MP3, or PDF download. So that's all available for free. So we're excited about that to um, be able to get that out to the nations. So what I'd like to do today is... um, before I get into the teaching, to kind of give you a broad brushstrokes, very broad brushstrokes, on what, where I am hoping to take us on this journey. Now, bear in mind, these are very broad brushstrokes, and we're going to get into the details of this over the course of the next few weeks. But last week, I spent a considerable, excuse me, considerable amount of time getting into the idea of who is Malkit Zedek. And hopefully, I was able to communicate that to you um, from Genesis forward with the War of the Kings as an introduction to Malkit Zedek. But this week, I really want to set the stage of where we're going to go as we understand how this relates to our faith. What if we're wrong? Would we be willing to change? Or are we so locked into doctrine? Are we so locked into tradition? And are we so locked into following the herd that we wouldn't be willing to change if truth was presented to us? Because I want to bring forth a paradigm shift. And some of the biggest revelations that happen in our life is simply a paradigm shift. And then when you see the shift in the paradigm, all the years of reading and studying that you have in the Word, suddenly you're like, of course. What if we could make sense of all of those law verses in the New Testament And we could bring them into clarity of not that, oh, that's done away with, which is the knee-jerk reaction. You come across a law verse in the New Testament, and religion's knee-jerk reaction is, oh, the law's done away with. That's for the Jews. That's the knee-jerk reaction or the sheep verse. And they'll take you to sheep verses. But there's a problem with that. Because then what happens when you start to go witnessing to the unbeliever, to the heathen, and you, you bring them, you know, like um, to the Ten Commandments? And that's a great tool for witnessing. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of um, fellas that go around doing that, and it's a great work. But you don't really have a leg to stand on because that's all in the law, you see? So the knee-jerk reaction to the law verses... I don't think is sustainable today when we have such information available to study. It's not like our forefathers in the 16th and 17th century and 18th century and even 19th century that had limited resources. This generation is going to be held to the highest standard of any generation of believers that has ever walked since the time of Messiah. So we don't have the excuse that the previous generations have because we have access to way more information. And it says in the scriptures, to him who knows it is sin, it is sin. And 1 John tells us that sin is 
lawlessness. And the Apostle Paul spends much time speaking to those in the nation and explaining to them that at the end of days, there's going to be much lawlessness that is going to abound. So we don't want to be in that camp. And he uses the Greek word a without nomos Torah. So does that mean that we're supposed to get into rabbinical Jewishness and follow the Torah? Many would say yes. But I would say that why would we want to learn from a religious sect that denies the Messiah? That can't be right. So my suggestion to you is, like I mentioned last week, that there is a broad road on the right that uses the knee-jerk reaction of the law is done away with and hence end up lawless and powerlessness. And it's very, very telling that the church, people are leaving the church in droves because they're seeing a lack of power and the study of the scripture is really not being done in earnest. But then on the other side of the, of the road, there is rabbinicalism and Torah, 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 which leads to much Jewish conversion and denial of the inspiration of the New Testament and can get into Levitical hierarchy, animal sacrifice, and much rabbinical Pharisaism, which we've been warned against. What if the narrow road that leads to life is all about following the Melchizedek, the Messiah Yeshua, and covenant? Because I believe that Yahweh speaks to his people through covenant, and only covenant. Because inside of covenant is safety and life, Outside of covenant is death and judgment. This is what the prophets spoke of. This is what Moshe Rabbeinu spoke of. Moses, our teacher, spoke of. And all the prophets after them asked Israel to repent and come back into covenant. In fact, Jeremiah says in the 31st chapter and the 31st verse that there would be a new covenant where the Torah, the law, would be written on the hearts of the people, and that they would walk in his ways. And then the writer of Hebrews explains to us in the eighth chapter, and he actually quotes Jeremiah to tell us that the covenant that Yeshua established by his blood was in fact that covenant. That it is the Torah written on your heart. So it's not lawlessness But because it's not mediated by Moses, but it's mediated by Yeshua, the greater Moses, the final mediator, then it can't be rabbinical Torah that the Jews are doing today. It has to be what James says, royal, which is kingly, law. So we need to understand today what royal law is. And for us to understand that, the paradigm is thus. In the scripture, you will find the words, book of the law. And you will also find the words, book of the covenant. Christendom interprets those as synonymous. It's the same thing. Rabbinical Judaism interprets them the same as well. 
synonymous. The book of the law and the book of the covenant are the same. What happens if we question the status quo? The book of the law and the book of the covenant are two separate entities. And this is the mystery of the Malkitzedic. What I want to suggest to you today is that in Genesis 12, Yahweh meets Avraham. And he swears an oath to him. He swears by himself an unconditional Malkitzedic covenant. There's no part of man involved in it so that that man can't screw it up. Excuse the vernacular, but man isn't involved. Yahweh swears by himself an oath to Avraham. It's an unconditional covenant. But later on, Avraham comes back to him and he says, well, how do I know that I'm really going to inherit this? I kind of would like a signature to know that I'm really going to inherit what you said. How do I know? So Yahweh says to him, okay, you want some kind of condition now that I'm really going to do what I said I would do in Genesis 12? How about you go and bring some meat and you cut all of those animal sacrifices in two? And he then makes a conditional covenant with Avraham. A Malkizedic conditional covenant. And it has a death position attached to it. Meaning if now, because this is a conditional, because you wanted a condition attached to Genesis 12, that if anyone breaks this covenant, somebody is going to die. There's a death penalty position attached to it. So now this is all part of a covenant of what Ephesians, Paul says to the Ephesians, is the covenant of promise. So Genesis 15 now, you have the attachment arm, a conditional arm given to Avraham of this Malkitzedic covenant, but it's got a death penalty position. Galatians tells us that the law came 430 years later. So now we go forward in time, and we find Israel delivered from Egypt, and they come to the mountain in Exodus 19. And that promise that was given 430 years earlier, the promise that was given to Abraham that was unconditional in Genesis 12, that then Abraham came back in Genesis 15 and said, can you give me some kind of assurance? Yahweh made a conditional covenant attached to it, but it's still the Malkitzedic promise, is now going to be brought to fruition finally 430 years later after they're delivered out of Egypt at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Israel then is brought before Yahweh and he's going to betroth them. And, they, and he proposes to them. And then they accept the, his proposal and says, Yes, Yahweh, all that you have said, we will do. And then they take out the blood and they sprinkle the book. They sprinkle the altar. And then the 70 elders go up and they have a covenant confirming meal with Yahweh on the mountain, and this covenant now, it's called by name in Exodus 19, the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant is the final fulfillment of all the Malkizedic promises that have been brought forth from Genesis 1 
that Yahweh spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, that Yahweh then made that unconditional oath with him in Genesis 12, then a conditional extension arm in Genesis 15. But it's the fulfillment, and Israel gets the book of the covenant. They get everything. They get betrothed to Yahweh. They are brought into covenant with Yahweh. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the words. But what happens? Within 40 days, within 40 days of receiving this, Israel makes a golden calf image. And the only person that is not involved in it is Moses, who's up the mountain, the last Malkitzedic. And it then tells you this, that the law was added, the New Testament says, for transgression. Because the book of the covenant was blood ratified at the mountain. Galatians tells us that once a covenant is blood ratified, you can't take away one word from it. You can't add one word to it. It's sealed. It's blood ratified. This is the wedding covenant to Israel. But Israel then broke the covenant. Yahweh was going to wipe out Israel, slaughter them, commit genocide on the whole of Israel. But Moses pleads and intercedes with Yahweh, please. He mediates and he mediates Yahweh, please. Don't. Yahweh says, well, I'll start over with you. I don't even need the nation, Moses. I'll start over and make a new nation with you. But Moses pleads and intercedes with Yahweh and he withholds his wrath and he puts them under the book of the law, a mediator, a schoolmaster, a tutor, where they would have to make much interest on the debt of sin by sacrificing the blood, the blood, the blood of animals for centuries. So when Paul talks about, and he calls it by name in Galatians, the book of the law, this is the paradigm. Yahweh has two wills, a perfect will and a permissive will. Yahweh's perfect will is that his people would live under the royal book of the covenant, which are the covenants of promise, which is royal law, royal Torah. But Israel broke the covenant. They were about to be wiped out. Moses mediated and interceded for them. So Yahweh then says, seeing as you've broken the covenant now to preserve your life, I will put you under the book of the law. I will now raise up a priesthood because you were all going to be priests. But now you're going to have priests from the tribe of Levi that will mediate this book of the law. And it will be until the time of reformation when somebody will come who is perfect and will pay the death penalty position in Genesis 15. And once that death penalty position is paid, then you can attach back to the oath that I swore you, and you can enter into a new covenant, you will be a royal priesthood, and you will walk in royal Torah. Not rabbinical book of the law. You won't be lawless outside of covenant, 
playing with blood and playing with all the stuff that the nations, claiming a Messiah yet not walking in covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But the key to understanding this is that the book of the covenant is Yahweh's perfect will. And the book of the law was added because of transgression in the, until the time of reformation when the Messiah would come, pay the death penalty position of Genesis 15 and then allow all by faith to enter into the Malkitzedic royal covenant that was always sworn by an oath by Yahweh to himself that man can't mess up because it was an unconditional arm that was the original covenant. That the new covenant is truly, truly for us today and it's royal Torah, royal law. It's a paradigm shift. No longer when you look at those verses in the New Testament is it saying, oh, the law's for the Jews. Paul is juxtaposing this. That now Messiah has come. You are no longer under the book of the law. You are to return to the covenant, the royal law that James speaks of. And now all of those New Testament law verses will make sense when you understand that Paul was saying, you are not under the book of the law. Return to the covenant. So what is covenant living? It's everything that we're going to find from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Exodus 24-11, which talks about the life of the Malkitzedic people. Abraham never knew a Levite. Jacob never knew a Levite. And neither should you and I walk in the rabbinical Levitical hierarchy. That's a broad brushstroke for you. Now let's enter into this because over the next few weeks, I hope to present scripture upon scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept, so that we can see that this is not an idea, but this comes from the very word of Yahweh. Jeremiah, man, what a prophet. Chapter 1, verse 11 of Jeremiah. It is written, Moresoever, the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? What do you see? And he said, I see a branch. I see a branch of an almond tree. The tree of life was an almond tree, symbolized by the menorah, which was an almond branches on it. Yeshua, we understand, had to pay the death penalty position, and he was nailed to a what? He was actually nailed to the tree of life that grew up on the Mount of Olives. We've done a teaching about that before, because David transplanted a branch that was handed down from generation to generation. And that's why we understand that he is the branch. He is the branch. But Jeremiah could see this vision. Jeremiah, what do you see? And he said, I see a branch, a branch of an almond tree. And then Yahweh said to me, you have seen well. I am ready to perform my word. Is Yeshua the word? And did Yahweh perform his word with Yeshua and pay the death penalty position by nailing him to the tree. 
Now, in past teachings, we've gone into much detail to show you that this was the tree of life that the Son of Man was nailed to because he was the second Adam. But in context of Jeremiah, why am I sharing this with you? Because in context, those that couldn't embrace the revelation of the branch had a particular kind of relationship to the law. You see, Jeremiah understood the revelation of the branch. And his relationship to the law was very different. The ones that didn't understand the branch, they didn't interpret it and couldn't understand the symbolism and its ultimate fulfillment. They had a different kind of relationship to the law. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 8 Those that don't understand Yeshua, haven't embraced Yeshua, don't understand that he is the branch, this is how they interpret the law and this is the view that Yahweh has on them. Those who handle the law did not know me. So should we be getting our understanding of the law from those who do not know Yahweh? Should we? So should we be following rabbinical Judaism and the interpretation of Judaism when it comes to the law? So therefore, I'm going to question their paradigm that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are the same. Because I don't trust their interpretation. Scripture tells me not to. Should we be getting our understanding of the law from those who do know him but then follow the interpretation of those before who don't know him? No. And that's where the Messianic Roots group come in. They're getting their understanding of the law from those that don't know him. So we shouldn't follow that interpretation either because Jeremiah had the understanding and you and I have the understanding. We have the greater wisdom because we have the revelation of the Son. Therefore, we should be on the narrow road of life and a narrow road of interpretation. Thus, I question and I say the book of the covenant and the book of the law are two separate books. The book of the law was added once the book of the covenant was broken because of transgression. We're really on a Malkitzedic narrow road between two broad roads of lawlessness and rabbinicalism. And it gets narrower and narrower the more you walk with him. It truly does. You see, traditional Christian theology understands the law verses in the New Testament to mean that believers are not under any Old Testament precepts or laws because now you've got a new economy of grace. The law was something that the Jews did and still do. And it's simply not for you. In essence, the baby has been thrown out with the bathwater. The baby, which is law contained in covenant, has been thrown out with the bathwater, which is imposed book of the law. You see? And we've ended up with a very lawlessness in the church that the Apostle Paul warned us about 2,000 years ago. And it's rampant because nobody is holding on to the commandments. If you love me, you'll be in his word and you'll find out what he wants you to do. 
James chapter 2, verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. The royal Torah is from the scripture, and it's the law of fidelity love, which is faithfulness to covenant. Because we think about that verse, about fidelity and love, and we think about it from one individual to another. But in the scriptures, ultimately, fidelity is not about me being faithful to you, but us as a whole, as a body, as Israel, finally repenting and being faithful to who? So the royal law isn't about, oh, well, you know, I just love my neighbor, you know, when no one's looking and, you know, nobody can hold me accountable. That's all I do to fulfill the royal law. I just love my neighbor. No, loving truly is about fidelity and it's about us as a whole, Israel, the olive tree, returning to Yahweh and being faithful to him. Faithful to the covenant is faithfulness to Yahweh. Then on the other road, we've got this Levitical law and rabbinical Talmudic interpretations of the Torah and a whole slew of Jewish and Pharisaic Torah deception. Teaching the return to Torah, sure, but they're erring, not making a distinction between covenant Torah, which is royal, which is kingly, which is the book of the covenant, and imposed Levitical book of the law. You see, the book of the covenant was agreed to. The book of the law was never agreed to. It was imposed upon them. Or they could die. You see, whereas the book of the covenant was, yes, Yahweh, all that you say we will do. There was a proposal, there was an acceptance, there was a blood ratification and a covenant confirming meal. But that wasn't apparent with the book of the law because it was imposed. So we find the lawless road and this non-division of Torah on this road. We have the two broad roads, but these two broad roads, though we may think, oh yes, one's lawless and one's into rabbinical Torah, they do agree on one thing. Not the deity of Yeshua, not that he's the Messiah. Oh no, they certainly don't agree on that. But they do have one thing in common. They both believe with differing results, but still destructive results, that the book of the law and the book of the covenant are the same and synonymous. Whereas I challenge you and I, if Yahweh says they're the same, why would he give them two different names? Why would there be an ark of the covenant, which was called the ark of the covenant because inside it housed the And then outside the Ark of the Covenant, Deuteronomy tells us, was the book of the law, which was a witness against them because they broke the covenant. Once the death penalty position's paid and you and I enter into royal covenant, is it witnessing against us anymore? No. So Paul was right. You are not under the book of the law. But we have to understand that's what he meant. But without this paradigm shift, we're either going to be lawless 
and the power of the resurrected Messiah is diminished in his people as Islam rises up and the sword of Islam and the power of Islam goes forth because they are actually following tangible commandments given to the false prophet. You see, it does work when you actually follow the instructions and you don't spirit. Islam doesn't spiritualize away what Muhammad told them to do. Yes, when he started off in Mecca, he was peaceful. But then when he went to Medina, that's when the sword verses come in. So are we going to have this narrow interpretation of Islam? You see, the narrow interpretation of Islam that the media tells you is the Meccan verses. But the broad interpretation of Islam is what ISIS are doing. It is the whole council of Muhammad, which later then got to the Medina verses with the sword verses, you see. Because he only had 150 converts when he was in Mecca. It wasn't working too well for him until he went into migration and realized that migration really is the key to the success of Islam. And he migrated to Medina, and then that was when there was plunder, pillage, and that's when Islam, the whole of Arabia, became under the sword of Islam through migration. We see, we're seeing this today. I've gone off on a tangent. My point is, we need to follow the commandments, not of Muhammad, but we need to follow the commandments of the Malkit Zedek. Because if you don't follow the commandments of the one you're supposed to follow, you end up powerless. And that is why the rise of Islam is so powerful, because the church has become powerless because they don't have any instruction to follow. Because we certainly cannot follow the instruction of the Pope. Right? Right. We have to follow the instruction of our master. So let me continue so we're going to find that the mystery of the Zedek and our return from the exile is very near. We're going to be no longer lawless, but neither erring or falling into the messianic Torah trap. What if Yahweh wanted to remove the book of the law tutor and schoolmaster over Judaism, but also wanted to remove the no-law free skate from the failing church and place all his people back safely within the parameters of royal covenant law. That's amazing. We'd be in this new covenant and we'd really be in it. We'd be in fidelity with Yahweh through the administration of his son, Yeshua, as the Malkit said it. There'd be no more lawlessness, no powerlessness. There'd be no more Pharisaic, Judaic, proscriptive Torah. But there would be this fully-fledged covenant fidelity, what James, the brother of Yeshua, calls the royal Torah, mediated through the hands of the Malkit Zedek high priest. And everything would be a whole lot better. A whole lot better. Kepha Aleph, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the glory of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a calling back to the royal priesthood that all of you, there's neither male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but you are all one in Messiah because you've now been ushered into the new 
covenant, which is back to the perfect will of Yahweh, that there's no longer just a Levitical priest over a nation, but that you would all be priests over the nation together following Yahweh. And that is what he's writing to Peter about in chapter 2, verse 9. The royal priesthood, that means it's kingly. The only kingly priesthood in the Torah is what? Melchizedek. It's the only one. You have no other option. He can only be speaking of Melchizedek here in context. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, For under it the people received the book of the law. Under it the people received the book of the law. He can only be talking about the book of the law here. They certainly didn't receive the book of the covenant. There was no Levitical priesthood in Exodus 19 through Exodus 24, 11. But at the sin of the golden calf... All of you that don't want to be involved in this, come draw close, Moses says. And the Levites draw close. And that is when they were chosen. Because of their faithfulness at the golden calf, even in their unfaithfulness, Yahweh's mercy. So really, the whole law, rabbinical Torah, is not viable to us. The whole law is not viable to us. Because law can be liberated, hence liberty. It can be rescinded and it can be amended. Second Peter 2.19 While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the slaves of corruption. For whom a man is overcome, of the same he is brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of this world through the knowledge of the Master and Savior, Yeshua, and if they are again entangled therein and overcome, their latter end is worse with them than the beginning. This is important. Yahweh's people are either being led into lawlessness, where even the Ten Commandments are desecrated and relegated to spiritual principles. I remember when I was at Calvary Chapel and I would ask questions about the Ten Commandments. Well, that's a spiritual principle. And I'm like, I, 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 I hear what you're saying. I understand the rhetoric. But in the Bible, it actually says these are commandments. If you can show me the verse where it says that they're no longer commandments, they've been relegated to spiritual principles, I'm on board. I'm on easy street. I mean, I like that. Let's make it easy. But it doesn't exist. Yahweh's commandments have never, will never, and have never been relegated to spiritual principles. That is a convenient, lawless theology that has been brought forth from the Reformation era. We have enough knowledge. We have enough information to know when it started. Let's wake up and smell the coffee. We don't have the excuses that they had a century ago. We don't. You can just Google this stuff and find out what happened in the Reformation. You can find out that they, we tried to pull away from Catholicism, but we only had half a dozen Greek manuscripts, and Martin Luther could only do so much. But it's up to this generation to pull fully out of the compromise and return to the covenant fidelity lifestyle. You see, that always bothered me. 
where the Ten Commandments were desecrated and regulated to spiritual principles in our misplaced zeal for his word, then people like myself, because I'm so zealous for his word, I fall into what? I fell into Torah, but I fell into Torah as interpreted by those who either don't know Yeshua or teach Malkitzedek from a perspective of the rabbis. It's not from the book of Hebrews. In fact, many in the Messianic movement would actually cast out the book of Hebrews because they don't want to deal with it. It's very important that we do deal with it. Again, people don't differentiate between covenant Torah, which is kingly, thus royal, and imposed book of the Levitical law, which was the temporary schoolmaster until the time of Malkitzedek at the resurrection. So ultimately, we have to rightly divide the word of Torah. Psalm 119 tells us that the law is truth. It's already established for us. 2 Timothy 2.15 Rightly dividing the word of Torah, the word of truth. This speaks of Torah, not Old Testament, New Testament, not law and grace, but a rightly dividing point. And that rightly dividing point is Exodus 24 verse 11, when you will find that after the covenant was blood ratified, that nothing can be added to it, Then Yahweh says to Moses, Moses, come up here and I will give you a law. Well, can that be something that's added to the blood ratified covenant? No. So therefore, in Exodus 24, 12, that has to be something completely separate because you cannot add to an already blood ratified covenant. It's been agreed to, it's been sealed, and they've already had the covenant confirming meal. So Exodus 24, 12 is... 2 Peter 2.15 are rightly dividing point. And again, I've got the broad brushstrokes. If you bear with me over the journey, we will nail this down with every single scripture to establish truth. Covenant can only be broken. It can never be disannulled. And it can never be added to. But if you're in a marriage and you... Let's not use us as an example. Let's use the heathen. When the heathen is in a marriage and there is adultery, the covenant is at that point broken, is it not? Where do you go once the covenant is broken? You go to the law, the law masters, and they mediate something new for you. When you're going to have visitation rights with the children, how you're going to divide up the money. You see, once the covenant is broken through infidelity, you go to the judges where there's mediation and something new, totally new, is set in place to mediate you. You have no hope in reformation at that point because you're not doing and it's not in the faith. Does that make sense? That's the natural world. Where do you think we get this from? Because this is what happened with Israel. Once they broke the covenant, then they were put under the law and mediated. But Yahweh in his faithfulness was able to bring them back to his perfect will. Galatians 3.15 Even if a covenant is a man's covenant, 
Yet still, if it is confirmed, no man disannuls it and no man can add to it. See, I've learned and taught both the abandonment of the law when I was at Calvary Chapel. I think we still have the CD at home. I did a teaching on the Ten Commandments, and I, I play it once every decade, you know. And I, and I say this to a whole congregation. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. It's impossible. That was what I was taught. Because it was a spiritual, they were spiritual principles now. You see? So... I've taught both the abandonment of the law when I was at Calvary Chapel, which, of course, included the Ten Commandments. We brought his name to vain emptiness and we relegated the Sabbath, a commandment, into a whimsical spiritual principle. I mean, there was so much adultery going on within Calvary Chapel. There was so much fornication going on and covetousness. And it was condoned within the midst. It made me sick. I remember there'd be a couple. They were married. They'd be sitting next, together, next to one another. I was an elder. Six months later, they're no longer sitting next to each other. One's on one side of the aisle and one's on the other side of the aisle. I was an elder. No one tells me about anything. A year later... She's hooked up with somebody else and he's hooked up with somebody else and then they're married. Nobody says a thing. This is condoned. This kind of behavior made me sick because I was like, this is no different than the world. And I was a struggling newly married with all the temptations and this was what I was being demonstrated to. This was what was being communicated. That We should be ashamed of ourselves to call ourselves believers and allow that to go on within the body of Messiah. So those were the kind of things that started making me question, hang on a minute, what guidelines are we following then if everything's a spiritual principle? You see, that began, now I know Yahweh's long-suffering with me, that he used those types of things to awaken in me this righteousness, this zeal. I mean, think of Kirk Cameron and Ray Comfort. You guys have heard of those. They do the way of the master. Have you you seen that? It's phenomenal. They go out and they go to people and they say, you know, they use the Ten Commandments. They use the Ten Commandments as a witnessing tool. And I commend them for that. They do a phenomenal job. But they're using the Ten Commandments as a witnessing tool to the lost to convict them that they're sinners and that they need to repent and they need to accept the Savior. They do a great job. But then when you follow through with it, hang on a minute, the very tools that you use to gain the neophyte, you're now going to tell them once you have used them literally to convict them of sin, to repent and come and follow the Savior, now you're going to unteach them that they're just spiritual principles. That is insanity. And, and we put up with it. You see, they're halfway there. But then the doctrines, dogmas and traditions of men don't let them go the other way. Don't let them quite complete what they've started. It's, a, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible. 
Now again, I've been on the other broad road and taught the keeping of many laws as being Torah observant, making no distinction between royal Torah, which is covenant, and the book of the law, which was the added to, not agreed to, it was the imposed law. Hebrews 9.10 sums this up, as does Galatians 3.19. The book of the law consists of carnal commandments, carnal ordinances imposed, not agreed to, imposed on them until the time of messianic reformation, when the Messiah would come and allow you to attach back to the Genesis 12 swearing oath because he paid the death penalty position of Genesis 15. Galatians 3.19, wherefore then serveth the law? In context, this can only be the book of the law. Where then there serveth the book of the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. This understanding is the paradigm shift that makes you understand all of the New Testament law verses in their proper context. Galatians 3.23. We were kept under guard by the law. This must only mean the book of the law. We were kept under guard by the book of the law, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the book of the law was our slave master to bring us to Melchizedek that we might be just as we never sinned by faith to the covenant. That's amazing. But once we're in the covenant of promise by faith, we are no longer under the book of the law tutor. Royal Torah. We are not saved to go back under mediation, which is the book of the law. You're saved to return to Yahweh's perfect will, which is the book of the covenant, which is royal kingly Torah. Isn't that amazing? Galatians 2.21. If righteousness came by the book of the law, then Messiah died in vain. Righteousness didn't come by the book of the law. If Yeshua had kept Levitical damage control law to correct or atone for an actual covenant infraction or breach of some kind on his part, he would then be our example to do the same. But Yeshua would no longer be the only way, would he? And he is the only way. You see, these covenants are called the covenants of promise. And they're for us. Ephesians 2.12 That at that time ye were without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Elohim in the world. This connects to Romans 11. You were those branches, wild branches. But you're supposed to now graft into the tree and produce the same fruit. The root is the royal Torah, the branches are the prophets, and the fruit is the new covenant, but it's all connected to the roots, royal Malkitzedic Torah. And those that don't will be broken off and thrown into the fire. How much easier 
is it for the natural branches to be, once they understand that it's all about Yeshua attaching you back to the covenant, how much easier is it for them to be picked up and grafted back in than you who are wild by nature to be grafted in? You see? Because rabbinical Judaism, though under the pressure of the rabbis, once many in the Jewish religion get this understanding of covenant of Genesis 12 and 15, it's going to be a lot easier for them to embrace it because they have the background of the five books of Moses and the prophets. Whereas many of us, we started in John and that's about it. We move forward never really looking to what was before. So really the purpose, I hope I'm trying to explain this to you well as we set this broad brushstrokes before we can go in even further, is that the salvation covenants of promise, Ephesians 2.12, are not part of the book of the law, Galatians 3.18, in any Bible at all. The purpose of me spending this time to communicate this to you is to bring this paradigm shift from the status quo teaching of the non-distinction to distinction between the book of the law and the book of the covenant. It's really a renewed covenant, a royal law, not a lawless New Testament only doctrine or a rabbinical Torah, Torah, Torah only. It really is that narrow road. And Yeshua had this principle that he taught, which was, which was um, kol vechomer. Yeshua practiced this principle, and it was the light and heavy. We have to weigh the light and heavy. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You've omitted the weightier matters of the Torah. So within the Torah, we have to understand there is a measure of weight. There is the weightier matters of the Torah, which is royal covenant. And then there is the lighter matter of the Torah, which was the imposed book of the law. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You have done what? You've omitted the weightier matters of the the law. We're looking at the weightier matter of the law. And we have to rightly divide between the lighter book of the law imposed and the weightier perfection blood ratified covenant. So let's see if you turn now to Exodus chapter 19 verse 5, you're going to see this actual book of the covenant itself. You're going to find a pre and post acceptance with blood ratification and covenant confirming the meal. So the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 12. It was an unconditional promise of this covenant. It wasn't realized until 430 years later. Right here in Exodus 19. All those promises given to Abraham are being realized right here in Exodus 19.5 to Exodus 24.8. But we have to understand, even though the actual book of the covenant is from Exodus 19.5 to Exodus 24.8, the Malchizedek covenant lifestyle, life cycle, and commandments are everything that Abraham walked in from Genesis 1.1 
all the way to the end of this covenant in Exodus 24.8. Everything in there is for you. It's a very easy interpretation of how to walk in the covenant lifestyle once you see these parameters. Now, the book of the law was imposed in Exodus 24, verse 12, and it goes through all the way till the end of Deuteronomy into parts of the book of Joshua. That's all book of the law. It was imposed until the time of Reformation. The book of the law is first alluded to in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18. It says, write a copy of this law in a book, book of the law. Why? Why would Moses have to write a copy of this law in a book? He already had the book of the covenant, right? Exodus 24, 7 and 8. Then in Deuteronomy 28, verse 61, we find book of this law. But it is first mentioned by actual name, book of the law, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 21. And Yahweh shall separate him for evil out of all of the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. Do you believe that Yeshua died so that you could go back under the book of the law where all of the curses are? Cursed is he who is hung from a tree that paid the penalty and releases you from the curses. So rabbinical Torah, rabbinicalism or messianicism would tell you, if there is such a word, that you go back under the Torah. But within the book of the law are all the curses. There are no curses, plural, in the covenant. There is only one limited family curse, and that's if you don't honor your mother and father. You won't have long life. So all of the curses are in the book of the law. So Paul was right. You're not under the book of the law. But if you go back to royal covenant Torah, there are no curses, plural. That's where all the blessings are. It's royal. It's kingly. It's the priesthood. Isn't that amazing? Look at that division. Look at the matter of weight. Weigh and rightly divide the Torah. If we don't rightly divide the Torah, we're either going to be lawless or we're going to be into rabbinical Torah. We won't be on that narrow road that leads to life. So let's look at these parameters of identification. We'll look at the Torah or the law of first mention and the law of last mention. It's like, you know, you sign before a contract and you sign after a contract. So in Hebrew, this is called the Torah of first mention. The book of the covenant is found in Exodus 19.5 through 24.8. The term book of the covenant is stated in Exodus 24 verse 7. The parameters are established by this pre-acceptance, initial acceptance of Exodus 19, verse 7 and 8. And then a post-acceptance, final accepting of the people being Exodus 24, 7 and 8. And like I said, this is identical today to a modern day contract where you sign before And you sign afterwards, and they even get you now, because they don't trust any of us, to initial on every single page in between, right? Now, Peter identifies Yahweh's same initial proposal of Exodus 19.5 by word, Peter does, 
if you will heed my voice at 1 Peter 2 verse 9. What voice? The voice from the mountain that proposed to Israel. You have been called. Hence the actual book of the covenant proper is Exodus 19.5. The actual scroll that was covered in the sacrificial blood is Exodus 19.5 verse 24.8. That is the covenant. But covenant lifestyle living is everything that the patriarchs did beforehand all the way up to that point. Does that make sense? It's like when you get married to your wife or your husband, you get a marriage certificate and you have some vows. But that isn't, doesn't mean that is the only thing that you're going to be doing in the marriage. Well, hang, hang on a minute. Taking out the trash was not on my vows and leaving a hundred every morning on the breadboard, that isn't in the contract, Tamara. That's not in the contract. We have this thing in my house. Every morning I get up, there's a little sticky note on the breadboard, take out trash, leave cash. 5.30 in the morning, I am the take out trash, leave cash man. And then there's usually like a, a nice little love heart or something. <laughs> Take out the trash and leave the cash. This is not what I agreed to. We were poor, destitute, and you had all the money. <laughs> so anyway, even though the book of the covenant itself is from Exodus 19.5 to 24a, that's the marriage covenant. The lifestyle of living is Genesis 1-1 all the way up till that point. Peter, again, identifies this amazing thing when he speaks in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. So we have the first and last mentions in Torah. Though it's a covenant-confirming meal, we find this covenant-confirming meal in Exodus 24 verse 11. So Yahweh proposes to Israel. They accept his proposal. The covenant is then laid out in a scroll There's blood ratification. The blood is sprinkled on it. It is now sealed, ratified. At that point, they go and have a covenant-confirming meal up on the mountaintop. Now you've got to ask yourself, if it's a covenant of promise, Ephesians 2, it has to contain those four things. A proposal, an acceptance, blood ratification, and a covenant-confirming meal. When Yeshua came... And he instituted a new covenant. Did he propose to the people? He proposed to them when he walked in and he came in on a donkey. Did they accept that proposal? Did he ratify that covenant with his blood? And did they sit down and have a covenant confirming meal? So would that then attach back to this book of a covenant? Of course it would. It cannot be a covenant of promise unless it has those four things. So many religious people will say, oh, well, why isn't this included? It doesn't have a proposal. It doesn't have an acceptance. It doesn't have blood ratification. And it doesn't have a covenant-confirming meal. If you go to Revelation and it's the marriage supper of the Lamb, again, you will find that when he returns, there is going to be a proposal, an acceptance, blood ratification. He comes and his garment is dipped in what? And then there is what? The marriage supper of... 
Again, it always connects back with those four things to the oath that was sworn by Yahweh to Abraham unconditionally. That's your heritage. You have an inheritance and a heritage that only comes by the blood of the Lamb. But it is actually concrete, tangible, and you can live it out. It is not some etherical, spiritual, whoopee-doo-dah, take commandments and make them principles insanity. It is Meat and potatoes, concrete. You can reach out, touch it, live it today. If you hear his voice, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Today, if you hear his voice. It's amazing. I mean, this has been a life changer for so many people all over the world. All over the world. We were hungry and we were thirsty. And he said, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. But if you're outside of the covenant, no matter how much you love him, no matter how much you love him, no matter how much you honor the blood, if nobody taught you to come and live in the covenant, you're going to be hungry, you're going to be thirsty because you haven't entered into the fullness of what it means to be a believer. And we're now really experiencing that. It's liberation, not liberation to lawlessness, but liberation to royal covenant living. Amazing stuff. Don't join a denomination. Join a priesthood. Truly amazing. Now, the book of the covenant, this term only occurs in the Bible three times. Three times. While the phrase is book of the law, it occurs in the scriptures 19 times. With one of those times being the only mention In the New Testament, book of the law in Galatians 3.10. So that tells us how to interpret Galatians because it is mentioned by name. Paul is juxtaposing book of the law being not for you and returning to covenant. And the best thing that he does is the allegory between Sarah and Hagar. And he says these are two covenants. The Jerusalem above, which is Malkit Zedek, and the Jerusalem which now is, which was under the book of the law. So we can find now Exodus 24, verse 7, 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 2, and 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 30 are the only three Bible mentions of the book of the covenant. The book of the covenant, that actual scroll, Exodus 19, 5 to 24, 8, is also called the inheritance at Galatians 3, 18. That covenant is your and mine inheritance. Did the Levites have an inheritance? You see, there is no inheritance under rabbinical Torah. There is no inheritance under lawlessness but destruction. There is inheritance in royal covenant. They're the inheritance promises for you. It's amazing. It truly is. The book of the covenant is the inheritance spoken of at Galatians 3.18. It is the answer to the promise that was given 430 years later, earlier, excuse me. It's the answer that was given in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. It came. That final seal of that covenant was made 430 years later. We see in Galatians 3.17, Exodus 12.41, and we find... Now that Paul tells us that once this covenant is confirmed or blood ratified, that you can't add to it and you can't take anything away from it, Galatians 3.15. And this is the huge 
understanding because that means that the law spoken of in Exodus 24:12 it cannot be ever be covenant it can't be it was something that was added later but it cannot be added to the covenant it was something that was alongside as a witness against them isn't that amazing if you can't grasp this and this is the thing that I, 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 I talk to people about. If you can't grasp this, then everything that I'm going to say from this point on, it's not going to be understood. If you can't grasp that you cannot add to a blood-ratified covenant, Exodus 24, 11, blood-ratified seal, that when he says in Exodus 24, 12, come up here and I will give you also a law. If you can't grasp that that is simply something totally separate, totally distinct from the before mentioned covenant, everything that I'm going to say to you, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And that's okay. We just, I just got to walk away. Because you have, that's why we have to follow the inspiration of the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament. Because there is the secret mystery revelation. We have the full picture. You can't expect rabbinical Jews to have this understanding because they don't have the book of Galatians or Hebrews. Why Messianics are throwing out the book of the Hebrews, returning to book of the Hebrews, whatever, book of Hebrews. and You know, it, 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 it just confounds me. I don't understand. Because there's so much deep mystery and deep knowledge there. The parameters of the book of the covenant, like I said, are Exodus 19.5, the law of first mention to Exodus 24.8, and then the law of last mention, including the given name in verse 7. But bear in mind, the book of the covenant Torah lifestyle is found all the way from Genesis 1 to the covenant confirming meal in Exodus 24.11, which includes, of course, the Shabbat, what to eat, what not to eat the fall festivals, the spring festivals, and everything connected to that sign that would be given to his people, right? The Sabbath. The parameters of the book of the law now are Exodus 24.12, the law of first mention, to Deuteronomy 31 verse 26, the law of last mention, including the given name in verse 26. I love this verse in Ephesians 2.12. That at the same time you were without Mashiach, Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to those covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without Yahweh and you were lost in the world. We have been given something so amazing and in their entirety... Five things of these covenants of promise. And we finish up. Number one, the Genesis 12 oath. Unconditional, man isn't involved. Yahweh swears by himself. Number two, the Genesis 15 promise with the death penalty position. Number three, the Exodus 19.5 to Exodus 24.8 book of the covenant seal this is the answer and this was broken in less than 40 days then number four we find the new covenant jeremiah 31 verse 31 mentioned by name in hebrews chapter 8 verse 8 and then finally this covenant of promise is revelation 19 7 the marriage of the lamb to his bride 
Israel that is pure because she's found within the parameters of covenant holy living. Each of these five covenants has a meal of confirmation attached to it. These all happen to be the Malkitzedic covenants under a Malkitzedic priesthood. Exodus 19.5 and 1 Peter 2.9. Owing nothing, absolutely nothing to the Levitical priesthood. Hebrews 7.11. Owing nothing to the book of the law that came under the Levitical priesthood. Exodus 24.12 to Deuteronomy 31.26. Mentioned in Galatians 3.10 through 19 and Hebrews 7.11. You see, Matthew and Luke were right when they said the law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets were until John. They didn't say anything about the covenant, did they? The book of the law was until John. Well, what do they mean? Why John? Because he was the legitimate high priest that immersed Yeshua. And we spoke about that last week. The law, the book of the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist immersed Yeshua as a king, thus fulfilling all righteousness. He came up as the Malkitzedek, thus fulfilling all righteousness. The purpose of the prophets... Well, the purpose of the prophets was always to warn wayward people to return back under the book of the law and to prophesy of the one who would restore the covenant. You see, Israel, when they were wayward, they were to return under the book of the law. They were to return under mediation. They had no option. They couldn't go into covenant because it was broken. So the prophets, the purpose of the prophets was to return Israel to repent and go back under the schoolmaster, under the mediator and wait. Wait until the time of reformation when the seed would come to give them a way back to covenant. But even if, they, even if the kings like Josiah had a heart, even if Solomon had a heart to return to the book of the covenant, there was no way that they could because it was broken and somebody had to wait, pay the death penalty position. So their only option was to return to the book of the law. That's why this verse says the book of the law, the law and the prophets were until John because John was the one that mikvahed Yeshua into the Melchizedek high priesthood that would give them a way back to the covenant. This is amazing. Romans 3 verse 27. Are we under a law of fidelity, which is faithfulness, or are we under a law of works? Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Nomos in the Greek. Of works? Ergon in the Greek? No. By the law, nomos of faith. Pistis. Again, that Greek word means fidelity. You're not under a law of works, but you're to return to the law of faithfulness, fidelity, which is always covenant. Romans 3.28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the book of the law. Romans 3 verse 31. Do we make void the law through faith? Yahweh forbid we establish it. 
Paul has identified in these verses both a law of works that is now at odds. It's at odds with the law of faith. The book of the law and the book of the covenant, they're at odds with one another. They cannot be the same. They are at odds with one another. We have, what's more, we have these two phrases that are by Paul's own hand. Nomos and ergon, and then we have nomos and pistis. We have nomon ergon, works of law, and then we have nomos pistis, works of faith, the law of faith. These are in opposition. You have to make a choice. And this gives rise to the knowledge of a distinct law that defines faith. The non-desirable deeds of the law in no way suggests that there will be not any deeds at all and that you'd be lawless. The Greek word pistis, faith, could have been easily translated into fidelity. So in actuality, we have a distinct law that defines fidelity. It's talking about faithfulness. Deeds that are at odds with the rabbinical book of the law or the work of law. You see, many people will try and tell you that Galatians is either kicking out the law in entirety or they're saying it's juxtaposing the written law against the oral law. But the oral law isn't even mentioned in Galatians. So people are inserting that interpretation into the text. But what is mentioned in Galatians by name is the book of the law. So we don't have to try and struggle and make up what it's talking about when it's mentioned by name right there. Galatians 2 verse 21. I do not set aside the grace. What is the grace of Yahweh? Would that be faith? Would that be faithfulness to the book of the covenant? Is that his grace that he even allows us to return to it? I do not set aside the grace, that's nomos pistis, that's talking about the book of the covenant of Yahweh. For if righteousness came through the law, that would be nomos ergon, the book of the law, then Yeshua died in vain. If Yeshua could do something in the book of the law to bring you entrance into the covenant, then any man could have done that. He would have died in vain. But because he paid the death penalty position of the covenant of Genesis 15, you now have redemption. He was the only one who could do that because he was the one who was witness to the contract as the burning torch and the smoking furnace that walked between the pieces. He was the one that established that he was willing to pay that death penalty position. So, in summation, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that he doesn't set aside the new covenant, unmerited favor of the book of the covenant for the right standing starting place, animal sacrifices, or Levitical prescriptions, book of the law. You see, a current Levitical book of the law is the law of works. If that was rightly valid... It would definitely make Yeshua's shed blood, his crucifixion, and his death absolutely useless. And we know that's not true. Or at best, it would be reducing it to what? Yeshua's once and for all ultimate sacrifice was just another way of entering. But we know that it is the only way 
John 14, 6. I'll finish up with two scriptures here. Galatians. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse. For as many are of the works of the law, book of the law, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. I don't understand how you can get around that verse. I really don't. In interpreting the whole book of Galatians. But that no man is justified by the book of the law in the sight of Yahweh is evident for all. It's not as if you just, justified means just as if you'd never sinned. Because you're under mediation, under the schoolmaster, doesn't mean that you weren't involved in the golden calf and the breaking of the golden calf. Moving forward to the 21st century, you can't move Yahweh's feast days to a festival of your own, make an image of what you think the Creator wants to be celebrated and how He wants to be worshipped. Oh, you know what? I'll just make, make up my own holidays, make up my own images. You know, I'll do it on the day of my choosing and think you're not going to be under the same judgment as Exodus 32. It's called golden calf worship. That's the religions of the world today. We've got all this mishmash paganism that's crept into the faith thanks to the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants never really did protest enough in my opinion and it's still all there today. It's no different than what they did at the golden calf. They were still worshipping Yahweh. Well, in my heart, I'm doing it unto the Lord. Well, great, so were they. Except they'd taken all of the paganism from Egypt and they transposed it onto on top of the true creator, moved his festival days to their own, of their own choosing, and they did their own worship service unto him. And he said that he hated it. And that broke the covenant. How are we going to be any different today if we've got a new covenant? We're going to desecrate it with our own pagan festivals with a thin Christian veneer on it? It's insanity. Insanity. When we have the biblical festivals of Yahweh for us today that have been established by his son from the very beginning. He is the sovereign master of the Sabbath, is he not? That doesn't mean we keep rabbinical Shabbat and we have, oh, don't you turn the lights out, oh, don't, no. No. Follow his commandments. If you want to pluck some heads of grain as you go through the field, that's okay. They didn't break the Sabbath. The Sabbath was commandment was don't take a sickle to standing heads of corn and start working in the cornfields or the barley fields. But that no man is justified by the book of the law in the sight of Yahweh is evident. For the just shall live by covenant faith. And the law is not of faith. The book of the law is not of faith. They, had no, they didn't have to have faith. Because they, weren't, they never agreed to it. Was the book of the covenant, was that of faith? All that you say, Yahweh, we will do. That was tremendous faith. But the book of the law is not of faith. There's no faith in it. It's a religious works of men which was imposed on them so that they wouldn't be destroyed. And that's why you see so many people in in the Torah, Torah, Torah movement, you're like, where's the faith? Where's Where's the power of the faith? Why aren't we healing people? Why aren't we going out and doing these? Because the law by itself is not of faith. 
It's of works. And it becomes self-righteousness. You see? For the just shall live by covenant faith. And the law, the book of the law, is not of faith. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13. Messiah hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from the curse of the book of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth from a tree, that the blessing of Abraham... Why would he mention that right here in context of the book of the law? Because the blessing of Abraham was the Malchizedek promises of Genesis 12, 15, 9, Exodus 19. It's book of the covenant. He mentions it, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon you in the nations through Yeshua the Messiah, the mediator who pays the death penalty position, that we might receive the covenants of promise through the spirit of faith. Pistis. Wow. Notice that the works of law and the blessing of Abraham by covenant, i.e. the promise, they are a dichotomy, a contradiction in terms. They are not the same. No way. There's no way that you can read that they're the same. Yet covenant righteousness has never come through the enactment of damage control, clean up Levitical book of the law, animal sacrifice stipulations that was offered to expunge the direct or collateral guilt of Israel after they broke the covenant of Exodus 32. It's amazing. One more verse. I just can keep going on and on, but it's just, I love, I love this. Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak in a manner of men, though if it is a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. There you have it. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises, the covenants of promises were made. He does not say unto seeds, as of many, but as to one. So there's one seed that is going to enable man to return to the covenants of promise. One is going to be the greatest mediator of all, Yeshua. One seed, as of one, and to your seed, that's the word of Messiah, who is, it names him right here, Moshiach. Verse 17, and this I say, that the book of the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by Yahweh in Messiah. What is he talking about? 430 years earlier, Yahweh swore by himself. Even though 430 years later, the book of the law was added because of transgression, because Yahweh confirmed it by himself through his son, Yeshua, you can't annul that because that is an unconditional covenant. No man was involved in it. Yes, somebody has to pay the death penalty position of the conditional arm in Genesis 15, but you can never annul because Yahweh was wise enough to know that man would mess it up. So therefore he made an unconditional covenant by an oath that he swore unto himself. We'll get more into that next, not next week, the week after. Verse 18. For if righteousness is of the book of the law, it is no longer of promise. But Yahweh gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the book of the law serve? Here's the big million-dollar question. It was added 
because of the transgression of the golden calf. Till Messiah would come, to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The greatest mediator of all. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but Elohim is one. Isn't that amazing? Questions, comments, broad brushstrokes today. I didn't get too technical with you, but we can delve into it deeper. Next time, we're going to actually go to Genesis 12. We're going to work through that. We're going to go to Genesis 15, work through that. Then we'll jump 430 years later to Exodus 19.5. We'll work through that all the way through 24.8. But this was the broad brushstrokes just saying, paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. Yes. What would Matthew Nolan say to someone who said, well, his words are written in my heart, so I don't even have to read the word? Well, that's correct. His word should be written on your heart. Let's go to the Bible verse that says that, and it's Jeremiah 31, 31. So if you're going to claim that his words are written on your heart, then you must follow through with what words they are, and that means that you would walk in royal Torah, Jeremiah 31, 31, because that's the place where it says that it will be written on your heart. You can't divorce that, spiritualize it, and put it over here. Let's attach it to the Bible, because this is solid. This, that can get very deceptive unless it's rooted in this. Uh, We have a question about the uh, Levitical law. Are we to observe or adhere to as they have the dietary laws, the feasts mentioned there? So how much is it that we follow? Well, this is the amazing thing. In Genesis 1.1, all the way through to Exodus 24.12, this is Malkitzedic covenant living. If the commandments are found in that area of the Torah, that rightly divided part of Torah, like Shabbat, for instance, it is found in Genesis 1-1 through Exodus 24-12. But there is more information given, much more information about how to keep Shabbat in the book of the law. Then you can go to the book of the law And you can find out more information on how to do it. Why was more information given about the commandments in the book of the law? Because they needed more mediation, more tutorship and more instruction because they were rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. Whereas Abraham just walked in Yahweh's Shabbat and his righteousness. Now, if something is in the book of the law, but it does not exist in Genesis 1-1 through 24-11... It is not for you. The dietary requirements, they exist in the book of the covenant because Noah knew of how to distinguish between clean and unclean. But now all of the Levitical prescriptions on animal sacrifice, that doesn't exist in the covenant. So there is some dovetailing where more information is given, but you have to rightly discern. Does it exist in the covenant? If it's in the covenant and there's more information to those that were under mediation, I'm going to be able to glean a lot more information. Just leave out the book of the law, Levitical hierarchy. That has been nailed to the tree. The allegory you used also um, of the divorce being a legal issue, um, that is very profound. Uh, I just want to mention that because as we're talking to people who are in the church, 
you know, you can actually say, are we under the law? Are we under the law? And they'll say, no, 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 no. So if you were to get a divorce, where would you go? You can't. There's, it's, it's really changing. It really you see, changing. that's the only place for you to go. You are either under the law or you have accepted the position of the mediator and the blood, and therefore the blood enables you to enter into one thing, covenant. You can take the blood and you can go down the street to the law and you can go over the road to lawlessness. It's not going to do you any good. Hebrews 10.26, at that point, you've just desecrated the blood of Messiah, counted it a common thing under the spirit of grace. Your grace has now thrown the blood of Messiah on the ground and you've trampled it underfoot because you didn't even understand the teachings of Moses. Hebrews 10.24, 25 and 26. Blood belongs in covenant. That's you lift it up and honor it. That's the only place for us where there's life, but he's long-suffering. I mean, it took 20 years for me to really un understand the entrance into covenant. And how many of us, when we first got married to our spouses, how many of us really understood what love was? I didn't know what love was. How, how could I know how to love my wife if I didn't even know how to love my creator, right? I, con I confused lust with love. Love is commitment, love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. It, 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 sometimes it takes 40 years in a marriage to understand that. For me, it's only going to take 20 and a half, honey. We're nearly, we're nearly there, babe. <laughs> hang in, hang in there, hang in, hang in. I'm nearly there. <laughs> Don't want her to be any more discouraged. <laughs> Uh, any other questions, comments? We thank you, Abba, for this just blessing, and we ask, Abba, that as we're on this journey, that you would truly, truly, Abba, just let us be bathed in your righteousness, Abba, and take comfort in your word, take comfort in your covenant. We thank you in Yeshua's mighty, mighty name. Amen. Amen.